1: I'm Dana Perino.
0: I'm Juan Williams.
1: I'm Kennedy. And this is the Fox News Rundown.
2: Monday, July 24th, 2023. I'm Chris Foster. The military is having its worst recruiting crisis since the end of the draft.
1: You can throw 10 more things at the wall. If none of the others stuck, this probably isn't going to stick either. What we have to change is how we present military service. We're speaking
2: with Fox News contributor and Marine veteran Johnny Joey Jones.
3: I'm Jessica Rosenthal. It appears to be a matter of time before the U.S. is more reliant on a growing nuclear industry. And while there's bipartisan support, there's a lot to work through before we see more reactors across the country.
4: We have the technology. We have the expertise here in this country. But we just got to send the right signal to the industry that nuclear is going to be a big part of our generation fleet.
5: And I'm Carol Roth. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown.
2: The United States military went all-volunteer 50 years ago this month, ending the draft that started in 1940 when it looked like the U.S. could be pulled into war. Since then, with few exceptions, the military has met its recruiting targets. The Army came up short last year, and it looks like every branch except the Marines will miss their targets this fiscal year ending in September. It's the number one challenge that we face and and the one thing that we have to be focused on. Army Chief of Staff nominee General Randy George says there needs to be better marketing and messaging to attract new recruits. Or are staying away for financial and other reasons.
1: The problem's culture.
2: Johnny Joey Jones is a retired Marine, a Fox News contributor, and author of the book, Unbroken Bonds of Battle, a modern warrior's book of heroism, patriotism, and friendship.
1: It's, well, twofold. First, it's our culture. We don't present military service to our young people or even just patriotism in general to our young people as something that's a positive thing or even something you can get a return on. And then on top of that, we fought a 20-year war that had relatively no outcome in their minds or a negative outcome. In the last couple of years, and so why would you want to join the military if you're not told that it's a good thing to do? I mean, I think it's really that simple.
2: If it's that, I don't know, broad of a problem, what do you do? How do you get the numbers up?
1: Well, you don't. That's the problem. You don't. As the military, get the numbers up. You have to do it as society and as a culture, and that's why all the stuff they're throwing at the wall. Unfortunately, most of it revolving around lowering standards still isn't working and i think what's most difficult for me to sit back and watch is to see that so simply and to see that they're not changing strategy a good friend of mine amber smith she was a army helicopter pilot she wrote a book about her service i believe it's called danger close but i interviewed her on a podcast in 2020 and she said this was the biggest problem that we're about to face and she had been in the trump administration as a dod spokesperson And she was absolutely right. We didn't quite talk about it yet. She knew exactly what was coming, and this is where we are.
2: One small thing, I guess, there's some members of Congress that are saying, look, for starters, it may be a small thing again, but let's drop marijuana testing for recruits and and new officers. You okay with that?
1: It's not about being okay with it. It's about being a very stupid idea to solve a problem. I mean, we can do a lot of things. We can change our height and weight standards. We can change our test scores. We, We can do a lot of things that would ultimately make more people eligible. But that doesn't mean it makes more people want to join it's two different things and that's the maddening part about our service uh, leaders so what they're saying is once you get in maybe we don't drug test you as much okay well now you're going to deal with a host of problems that you don't normally have is marijuana the worst thing in the world no it's showing the discipline to stay away from marijuana because that's what we require of you absolutely important to be a good soldier marine sailor airman yes and to shy away from those things, no matter how arbitrary they may seem, to do it in bulk, which is what we 're doing, all the way from hair to you know if you can paint your fingernails to your, choosing your identity. like there are so many things that we 're taking the standard and we 're moving it towards someone so that they feel included. Joining the military is not about feeling included. it's about becoming a part of something bigger than yourself. As a matter of fact, a big part of what makes our military work is the idea that you're willing to not be special and unique and seen, that you're okay being one of the masses and understanding that that type of sacrifice, even when it comes down to your personal wants and needs, is what's necessary to have a military that can go out and fight and win a war. And so every little thing we do to take away from that, not only is it ineffective in actually doing what they're trying to, which is to up recruiting, but it also makes us less effective in war.
2: Yeah, and I guess to your point, if let's say you drop every single standard and make Every single American eligible to serve, you still might not hit your numbers if people just don't want to do it.
1: And that's exactly what I'm saying. It's not even you still might not. It's you are not hitting your numbers. They are already dropping things left and right. They're already changing things left and right. They're changing the physical fitness requirements. They're changing previous uh, you know, negative record, whether it be arrest or what have you. They're changing what you're obligated to do once you are in service none of these things are working so you can throw 10 more things at the wall if none of the others stuck this probably isn't going to stick either what we have to change is how we present military service and honestly the truth of it is i think that the answer staring us in the face when i joined the marine corps it wasn't because the marine corps was going to put me in a unit where everyone spoke hillbilly like i did and i felt like i was seen and heard and acknowledged it was because the military specifically the marine corps said, listen, we're not sure you have what it takes, but if you want to come try, we'll let you. And that's all you need to do. And the more you try to make it seem lax, laxed or less exclusive or elite in being able to do it, the less incentive there is to do it. I mean, nobody joined the Marine Corps in 2005 when I did. Because they were going to make a bunch of money and stay safe. They joined the Marine Corps because they knew we were at war, or they didn't want to be the one person in their generation that wouldn't go and defend their country or earn that title. And to think that that worked so great then and it can't work now, that, that kind of blows my mind.
2: When there's a political push-pull involving the military, stuff like paying for abortion costs and the debate over that and holding up promotions over it, does that stuff have any effect on the day-to-day
1: Well, sure it does. For service members, I think that when I was in, I was relatively insulated from the majority of politics. Politics really didn't have, I didn't have a consciousness of the politics in our military until we were going to Afghanistan in 2010. And President Obama told the world we were about to draw down because he wanted to win a a midterm reelection. And in doing so, it cost a bunch of us our lives and legs. And I'm not saying that was his goal. I don't think that's what he meant to do at all. It was just bad leadership. And so generally speaking, I served during a time of war, so it's harder for me to say. I don't know what kind of, you know, I, someone serving right now has on politics, considering they have a lot more connectivity than I did, and they don't have a mission in front of them like I did. Now, I think it's the leadership's fault. They don't have a mission. You don't have to be at war to have a mission. But when you're focused on all these other things, how could you be focused on a mission? And I think in that respect, it has a big impact on day to day.
2: Let me talk about your book for a little bit. It's been out about a month. I guess the idea of it is that you feel like you can't tell your story without telling other people's story too, right?
1: Well, it's just unnecessary. Listen, my story's told already. I I have been on Fox for the better part of a decade in some way, shape or form. We have a Fox Nation special that that details the day I was injured. I go speak to large audiences. My story is canonized in its own way, but another side of my story are all these people that have affected me and I've affected, and that really tell the larger story of what are these wars in this past two decades, of what that's really meant to regular everyday people. The best way to explain this book is these are extraordinary things that happen to otherwise ordinary people, people that are in your life every day, And all you see is that sticker or the license plate that acknowledges on that as a veteran. And you don't really understand all the amazing and tragic and beautiful things they've gone through. And so the idea here was, if you want to learn more about me and you're interested in me as a Fox News or Joey Jones fan, then I'll tell a story. I'll write a book that really helps you understand me. But I'll do it from the perspective of the people that had big impacts on my life. For example, one of the chapters of Stacey Greer, her husband, Daniel Greer, was standing beside me the day I lost my legs, and he lost his life. So you learn about the events of that day from her perspective, from the perspective of a Gold Star wife, someone who lost the man she was starting her family with, and you know what I meant to her and how her grace and love impacted me. So rather than just the fact I stepped on a bomb and it was tough to get through, now you learn how hard it was for me to face her again and to accept the fact that she didn't hold it against me that what happened that day took her husband away.
2: Yeah, you have 10 people in here telling their stories. Uh, tell us about, um, just to pick one, Amos Benjamin. If
1: you read the book, the first three chapters are all intertwined. That's Greg Blusky, Amos Benjamin, and Danny Ridgeway. These are three Marines, two of them are Marine EOD techs, which is what I was, which is a really small community. And Amos was the brother of a Marine EOD tech. Amos himself was a Marine infantryman. And so he was really connected to our community as well. His brother was killed in action in 2009. And then Amos deployed almost immediately after that and was injured himself. So he's a wounded Marine combat veteran, also a Gold Star brother. And his brother was close friends with Greg Leluski and Danny Ridgway. Danny Ridgway was my best friend in the EOD school and has been for 15 years. And These are four guys that go hunt together and just hang out and live regular lives. But then you learn all the background we have. I mean, we have survived Amos's brother getting killed, our friends getting killed, me losing my legs, Amos and Danny getting injured, with a traumatic brain injury. Greg being the leader of a unit that suffered per capita one of the worst attrition rates of any marine unit that deployed to Afghanistan in 20 years. And so when you learn the depth at which the four of us have survived, it might help you appreciate the fact that there are veterans in your life, but also people in your life that have overcome such tremendous things, but they just get up in the morning they go to work and they put a smile on their face and they're there for their family. And it really helps people understand that you need friends to get through stuff. And some of the friends you have have already gone through some stuff you could learn from.
2: There's stuff in here about your dad, too. You tell anecdotes of your own in this book, and you share some of the the wisdom he imparted upon you. Don't bust the rust unless you're going to polish the chrome. I hadn't heard it before. Tell people what it means.
1: Basically, what that means is my dad truly believed that everybody had something worth investing in. And if you were stuck with somebody, you felt stuck with somebody. They're on your team, they're in your family, they're in your church. You could either despise them for what you don't like and isolate them, ostracize them, and never make them a part of your team and be weaker for it. Or you could find what it is they do best and invest in that. So it's okay to bust the rust on somebody to let them know, hey, you can do better at this, you can do better at that, you should be on time, what have you. But if you're going to do that, why not polish the chrome too? Why not let the good things shine?
2: Uh, You've been out and about across the country, uh, meeting people and talking about the book and selling the book. Any good stories about meeting people on the book tour?
1: It's been pretty amazing. We've only done four stops so far. So not every book has roots. You know, some books are a person's general ideas or thoughts on a topic, but this book has roots. I mean, there are 10 people in this book, 11 if you consider me, who have hometowns and who have places that are important to them and places that acknowledge them and want to see them succeed. So the idea on doing a book tour is to take this book to places where those 10 people are and to have them join me on a book signing and let people see the faces that accompany the names and stories. The first one was in Chattanooga, Tennessee. A couple of folks in the book are from East Tennessee. Keith Stansel lives there now and accompanied me for it. The second one was in my hometown, which was amazing to see that many people come out in such a small town, Dalton, Georgia. Keith being from Dalton to join me on it too. Then the next two were really cool. We went to Pensacola, Florida, and Destin, Florida. And so that Panhandle area, Destin specifically – is where the entire EOD community, the, the bomb tech community for the entire military is located. And so I got Danny Ridgeway, Amos Benjamin, and a sailor turned soldier, Aaron Hale, who's technically blind and deaf. And they accompanied me on the signing. And so many people were excited to see me. They're a Fox News fan, they're a Joey Jones fan, but to see their face light up just as much or tears roll down their face as I signed their book and they moved over to Danny or Amos or Aaron, and to see people that read the book truly appreciated the stories in it. I mean, that's, I couldn't be more fulfilled in that moment than to share that moment with three of the guys from the book.
2: Well, congratulations on all of it, Joe. Uh, it's called Unbroken Bonds of Battle, uh, a modern warrior's book of heroism, patriotism, and friendship. Good to talk to you, man.
1: Thank you.
0: On the Fox News Podcasts Network.
1: Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast. Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at Foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.
5: This is Carol Roth with your Fox News commentary coming up.
3: Members of Congress on both sides of the political aisle sound committed to a future with more energy coming from nuclear reactors.
5: Expanding American nuclear energy. An increasing deployment of American nuclear technology, both here and abroad, is essential for re- reducing emissions, providing reliable, affordable, clean energy to Americans, and for building durable economic and strategic relationships around the
3: world. That's Republican Congresswoman Kathy McMorris-Rogers at an Energy and Commerce Subcommittee hearing last week. And here's Democratic Congresswoman Diana DeGette at the same hearing.
4: Nuclear energy has the potential to meaningfully drive down our emissions as we transition to zero carbon energy. We all know the statistics, but they're worth repeating. Currently, nuclear energy makes up nearly 20% of the electricity we generate in the United States and nearly half of the carbon-free electricity that we generate.
3: So it sounds like a matter of when, not if, additional nuclear power plants dot the American landscape, which means a lot of new legislation is being proposed around this.
4: I'm particularly interested in Ranking Member DeGette's bill, uh, the Strengthening the NRC Workforce Act. This would allow the NRC to attract and retain talent and expertise, something that will be critical as we ask it to license advanced reactors.
3: There are a number of issues to clarify, though, and they include, as you heard, Democratic Congressman Frank Pallone indicate the nuclear regulatory agency's future rules of the road and what they consist of, finding a workforce, including welders who know how to handle new nuclear modules, buying uranium, maybe from Canada instead of Russia, which is, by the way, where we're buying nearly a quarter of uranium we use for our nuclear energy right now and figuring out where on earth we're gonna store nuclear waste as there would be more of it. The current administration is in on this as the Deputy Assistant Secretary in the Office of Nuclear Energy at the Department of Energy Michael Goff told the subcommittee hearing just last week.
4: Nuclear energy provides emissions-free firm power necessary to underpin the transition to a carbon pollution-free electric grid by 2035. New reactor deployments also have the potential to decarbonize industrial applications in support of the net zero by
6: 2050 goals set by the United States and our partners around the globe.
3: Many of the panel experts answered pointed questions about it all, including the safety of the newer models as compared to the older ones.
4: Nuclear is the nation's cleanest, uh, from a carbon emission standpoint, uh, energy generation that we have.
3: South Carolina Republican Congressman Jeff Duncan
4: there is bipartisanship uh, on this issue to really address uh, you know, what the future of nuclear energy looks like in this country. And right now we're hearing a lot of talk about advanced reactors, small modular reactors, and we don't know what the ultimate uh, result will be, but advanced reactors, uh, small modular reactors are being propagated, not only here in the United States, but Canada, uh, Poland, Czech Republic, Korea, uh, other places, sort of Japan, are looking at it as well. So, we believe that those small modular reactors will probably be um, successful, and uh, they can provide power for uh, an industrial park, uh, a small community, uh, uh, a larger city. They can be linked together. They're dispatchable. That means they can be ramped up and down. Hmm. So, there's just a lot of uh, a lot of interest in in that all across the globe.
3: I'm reading a piece, though, published by Stanford researchers last year saying these smaller reactors actually produce a bit more nuclear waste. I wonder what we're going to do with that, since it doesn't seem like we have a clear path to storage in, in Yucca Mountain in Nevada. Uh, we've we've heard that fight going on for, for years.
4: I look at the waste that's sitting at commercial sites around the country, and there's uh, 121 sites in 39 states that have commercial waste. That needs to be reprocessed. France gets about 95 percent of... Uh, the available energy from the same fuel rods that we get about five percent from so reprocessing has got to be part of this conversation and uh, i consider that uh, spent fuel at the commercial sites as a national asset not just waste but even with reprocessing there's going to be some residual at the end of the day so that residual and also defense waste this hits the savannah river site and hand for another defense sites around the country uh, needs to be stored somewhere we have uh, a a repository for that. And that's Yucca Mountain. And that needs to be part of the conversation.
3: Is there any concern safety wise about what nuclear plants represent, even if they're small? You know, we see what's going on with the Zaporizhia nuclear plant being weaponized in Ukraine right now by Russia. and That's a whole other safety issue that, uh, you know, no other mass energy source has that, that I'm aware of. Is there concern about that?
4: Well, there's gotta be concern in a time of war and and there should be an agreement among nations across the globe that nuclear sites are off limits for any sort of um, attack or any sort of uh, damage because of what they do, not only to the local community and local uh, country, but also the impact they could have on the world. Um, We've been operating nuclear power in this country for over 60 years safely and uh, and we know how to do it. We've got great regulatory process uh, for safety review And um, we just traveled to Korea and and Japan on a CODEL looking at nuclear power. And um, one of the big concerns we had was safety.
3: Let me ask you, you know, um, Republicans like like you and your colleagues have been mentioning in hearings about Russia and China being in the nuclear game and that that we need to be more competitive here, that this is a big part of of why there's this investment and this talk about uh, using more nuclear modules, more nuclear reactors um, in the United States and even making them. Um, is that, I guess, the, the GOP's main focus on nuclear is that it's a, a reliable source of energy and that our adversaries are doing this?
4: Absolutely. I mean, we've been to operate nuclear reactors safely in this country for over 60 years. And um, also in our United States Navy, we, we've operated nuclear reactors for about the same length of time. And we used to be a leader in nuclear technology and exporting nuclear technology and, and advancing it here in this country, but um, we've kind of gotten away from that. And we see China and Russia really started trying to take a leadership role and stand up nuclear projects in other countries in Africa and the Middle East and other places. That's where the United States needs to be. We need to be operating in that space and be seen as a leader once again. And we can be. We have the technology, we have the expertise here in this country. But we just gotta send the right signal to the industry that nuclear is going to be a big part of our generation fleet uh, for power generation in this country and uh, we know that it's you know it's carbon free um, and it provides that that 24/7 365 baseload generation that we need in this country and uh, and reexert our, our position in the globe as, as leaders in the nuclear industry.
3: And this is where the bipartisanship comes in right the, the Democrats are, are really heavy on the zero emission. Aspect of this, that this could be quite a big part of the solution along with wind and solar.
4: Absolutely. I mean, so um, Diana DeGette, who is our ranking member on the committee, leaned over to me one day and she said when she first came to Congress that uh, Democrats didn't like nuclear, but she is seeing a a swing back to embracing more nuclear uh, generation because they understand it's carbon free. And so I think we have a window of opportunity here to work in a bipartisan way to help, you know. Bring the NRC, the Net Nuclear Regulatory Commission, into the 21st century, modernize what they're doing, help them not be an impediment to the advanced nuclear, but also to, to, to be somebody that, that fosters more nuclear power in this country. And uh, especially as we look at advanced reactors, some of which are walk away safe and they'll put themselves out if, if something happens. Um, small modular reactors that seem to work. And uh, and we get these projects, whether it's Power or New Scale or or what GE Hitachi is doing, and uh, we get one proven, and um, and show that we can modulize this, and then manufacture those in a manufacturing facility, dropped in site, connected, uh, set up, and start generating power. That's really how simple it can be.
3: Yeah, we'll need the workforce for that. That's a whole other discussion. Um, what one of the focuses though to your just to your point. Um, And it could this could have been boring, but it certainly wasn't, was how the Nuclear Regulatory Energy Agency needs to shift on planning for the future of of this. And it was clear there's some disappointment um, on this end that the NRC is essentially failing to prepare for this. Uh, What do you say about that as as one of my final questions?
4: Well, we had the NRC in front of our committee, all the commissioners, and we talked to them about this and what they're doing to plan for the future, because, you know, nuclear is not just happening in this country, it's happening around the globe and other countries laying on our NRC to help them in their regulatory environment and their safety uh, protocols. And so, you know, just trying to help the NRC kind of refocus to not be an impediment to help foster the nuclear industry in this country and advance reactors. And everybody's watching what's going on in Wyoming, what's going on in Idaho, what's going on in Ontario, Canada with these small modular reactors. NRC is very involved in that. So what can we do in Congress to help them? You know, foster that environment, keeping safety first and foremost, and uh, and what we should look at, but also to help foster the industry. Look at advanced uh, reactors. Look at enriched uranium and in an in industry that we need a fuel source and lessen our dependence on Russia, which provides about 20 or 21 percent of our our fuel right now for our nuclear reactors. And where that fuel is going to come from, how it's going to be developed, enriched uranium, high low, or or uh, traditional uh, low enriched uranium. So. These are things we're all looking at and how we get the NRC into the 21st century and their mindset.
3: yeah, how do you I did hear you guys this is my final question for you. I did hear you guys get into it about how we are relying on Russia for uranium and Canada seems to have a, a lot of available uranium, but we don't have an enrichment process in place for it. Is that part of the frustration and and making that shift over and away from Russia to to Canada?
4: Absolutely. well Canada or standing that industry up here in this country uh, we have a, an enrichment. Plan in New Mexico, but sending the right signals to industry. This is a mature industry uh, that we know how to do it. But uh, also, as long as uranium fuel is cheap from Russia, there's a price point on mm-hmm. the investment and, and return on that investment and, and whether you can make those investments. And so, you know, we need a domestic supply chain. We need a domestic sourcing of enriched uranium here, end our dependence on Russia. and uh, And then at the same time, look at closing the fuel cycle and reusing some of this this spent fuel as uh, as future fuel for reactors. So it all kind of works together in tandem.
3: Congressman Jeff Duncan, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your time and your insight.
4: Well, thank you so much for having me. And we look forward to the future of nuclear in this country.
6: Here's a look at the week ahead. Monday, Vice President Kamala Harris heads to Chicago to deliver the keynote address on the final day of the UNIDOS conference. Tuesday, comedian Jim Gaffigan has a new stand up special out on Amazon Prime. Wednesday is a busy day. The House Oversight Committee holds a hearing on UAPs, otherwise known as unidentified aerial phenomena, known as UFOs to most. It's Federal Reserve Day. We'll see what they do with rates. We're exactly one year out until the Paris Olympics. The NAACP holds its 114th national convention in Boston. And Go USA! The women's national soccer team plays the Netherlands in their second group stage game of the World Cup being hosted jointly by Australia and New Zealand. Thursday, the Italian prime minister visits the White House. Friday, the Republican Party of Iowa hosts a Lincoln Dinner fundraising event with a bunch of 2024 candidates, including Trump, Pence, Scott, Haley, and more. And that's a look at your week ahead. I'm Rich Dennison, Fox News. Jason
2: in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on
1: foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts.
0: Rate and review the Fox News Rundown on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Carol Roth. What's on your mind?
5: Just over a decade ago, you may have taken out a mortgage from a big financial company, but you wouldn't have to compete with them or the companies they have funded to buy a single family home. But today, the elite are trying to get you to rent the American dream from them. Yes, some of the biggest names in finance like BlackRock, the largest asset manager in the world and purveyor of ESG ideals, Blackstone, JP Morgan Chase, Goldman Sachs, and Capital One, among others, have bored hundreds of millions of dollars into backing companies that purchase single-family homes and rent them back to middle and working class Americans. Owning a house has been the defining symbol of that American dream, and there's good reason for that. It's an important asset for creating wealth. If you wanted people to create more wealth, a key path to doing that would be making it easier for them to own a home. But the elite in the U.S. and globally don't want that at all. That's why it is no surprise that a recent report from real estate brokerage firm Redfin showed housing affordability hit a historic low in the United States, with less than a quarter of the homes listed in 2022 considered affordable for the typical U.S. home buyer. Per the Federal Reserve Board's 2019 Survey of Consumer Finances, the home, aka primary residence, was the largest asset owned by dollar amount across all households and across all ethnic groups. More U.S. households have home equity than stocks and mutual funds or retirement accounts, including IRAs, KEO plans, thrift savings plans, and 401k accounts. But the financial, business, and political elite, many of whom own one or more mansions themselves, have overseen an epic transfer of wealth from Main Street to the already wealthy and well-connected, which has accelerated at key points over the last decade and a half. These corporate homebuyers are not only driving up prices, but are formidable competitors in other ways. They have the financial ability to make all-cash offers, not relying on mortgage approval like a typical homebuyer would. These corporations don't even look at the properties in many cases. Why would they? They don't plan to live there. According to data from CoreLogic, investors purchased an estimated 22% of all U.S. homes in 2022. That is more than one in every five homes being purchased by an investor. The investors own something. You own nothing, and they collect the rent on the difference. This practice, enabled by the Fed and government policy, is taking aim directly at middle and working classes. Regular Americans are priced out of ownership, and they are not happy. Whether the you will own nothing prediction follows the expectations of the new financial world order, or is a directive to help create one, it doesn't matter much. Being a perpetual renter rather than a homeowner is a substantial affront to creating individual and generational wealth. The elite aren't stopping at homes. They're buying up land, water rights, and more. You must work to own whatever you can because if the elite own everything and you own nothing, they will end up effectively owning you. I'm Carol Roth. You will own nothing. Your war with a new financial world order and how to fight back is available for purchase now.
0: You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com.
5: I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast, bringing you closer to the story than you ever thought possible. Subscribe at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. These are the stories that keep you up at night.
0: Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform
1: and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch.